Hello, everybody. Welcome to 40 Going On 14. I am Mike. I am Patrick. I'm Joel. And I'm Josh. And there were many portents and signs surrounding my birth, but you guys are safe. My birthmark says 999. No, no, no. Unless you're standing on his head. Why would you stand on his head? To see the 999. Oh. 99. (laughs) No, no. All right. So... This week, we are watching The Omen for the, what is it, third week of October? Third week. <laughs> Take that as a yes from Joel. Third week of October, we're watching The Omen and the original 1978? Six. Six. 76. It was just a coincidence that it came out the same year I was born. Uh, uh 1976 versus 2006. So, we got some devil kids running around on this show. Wit, 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 wit. Yep. And, uh, Did you just say wit, 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 wit? Are you accusing Jay of something? Nine, 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 nine. <laughs> Quiet, dust pigeon. Caw, caw, caw. Bang, fuck, I made a mess. Jeez. All right, so, if you're looking for more of this... Or you have a suggestion for a show, give us a call at 708-NOW-RAP. That's 708-669-9727. We're always looking forward to new voicemails. And and I'm always panicking as soon as Mike mentions the voicemail, because I can't remember if we have one. But I'm pretty (laughs) sure we don't. And every every week, as I'm saying that, Josh is going, shit. (laughs) Yes, that's exactly what happens. So yeah, sometimes so earlier in the day we'll get the voicemail the day we record the show. That's the only time that doesn't happen. <laughs> I say if you like to chat with us also, you can join us on our Discord and join us on the Show Ideas channel. Or right now we're tossing around the idea of making Patrick no, watch Teletubbies. No, we're not. No, yes, we're not. we are. Yes, we are. Tubbies, no, Teletubbies is not a thing. It's not happening. No. You know you love that tubby custard. <laughs> Shut <laughs> up! All right, set that one week in house party this next week. Oh, uh, I quit! I, I quit. We're done. Who's eleven? Man found dead in the back of his home. 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 <laughs> you couldn't decide on a house or home. 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 <laughs> Why are you saying it like that? Home is where the hat is. <laughs> is it about that time? It is about that time. Can it be Whip. about the time? Yeah. Music, movies, and TV. And help. <laughs> All right, so this week we're going with in that voice. It doesn't work. Nothing works in that voice. Stop Spark. using that. There you go. Uh, June 25th, 1976, the release of the original The Omen. All right. So music, the top song in the land was Silly Love Songs by Paul McCartney and Wings, which we were just discussing in the chat this last week. Yeah, I thought Patrick hated this song. Nope, wrong Paul McCartney song. Yeah. I think he disliked the Red House Painters version that I love that we did on our, one of our cover shows. That oh, yeah, that's not right. Yeah, that was a yeah, terrible. That, that was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was, that, that's a bag full of poo, yeah. Well, you don't have to listen to it in your home. Listen to it in my home. <laughs> your huge party. Is he a dog? That's not my dog. 
the only Pink Panther bit I remember. All right, oh, moving on. Bad. I mean, the, the one that I can quote, I don't know. It's Return of the Pink Panther, right? Yeah. Okay. Leanne Bingham Nash, born June 27th. Uh-oh. Just kidding. It's an American singer and songwriter who was the lead vocalist for the band Sixpence, None the Richer, and Foliage, spelled F-A-U-X. Wow. Uh, her yeah, debut like <laughs> solo album, Blue on Blue, was released on August 15th, 2006, and she has since released two other solo albums. Nash has two Grammy nominations, Best Pop Performance by a Duo or a Group with Vocal in 1999 and Best Rock Gospel Album in 1998. She is a cool lady. I appreciate her. I wish I really know her. that uh, phone cameras were a thing back when karaoke, what was it? there was a karaoke game on PS4 that really just measured what tone you were singing in. And Jay was over at my house. And I got <laughs> Jay... Uh, karaoke singing kiss me singing kiss me Ooh. but he wasn't singing it he just discovered that he could match the pitch so all he was trying to do is trying to make make the arrow hit the right <laughs> so he's just standing at the microphone <laughs> and he did great he did oh <laughs> uh, yeah well technically he did great <laughs> technically he scored really well yeah. the only reason For i once know in his life <laughs> Uh, yikes oh shit shots yeah, the, fired the only reason i know leanne bingham nash is because of interviews she gave right around the time uh, kiss me came out and uh she she's just a charming little lady nice she's a little, like, little cutie i like when celebrities are, are good people all right and finally john herndon mercer was an american lyricist songwriter what Herndon Mercer. Like, that sounds like a Muppet name. Herndon <laughs> Mercer. <laughs> John Herndon Mercer. And it was in his home. Uh, <laughs> That's got to be the Swedish chef's real name. John Herndon Mercer. <laughs> it was an American lyricist, a flip, 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 flip. <laughs> Songwriter and singer, as well as a record label executive who co founded Capitol Records with music industry businessman Buddy De Silva and Glenn E. Wallachs. You yeah, guys best... might know him better as, as Johnny Mercer, by the way. Uh, ah, mm. I have heard that name. He is best known as the Tin Pan Alley lyricist, but he also composed music and was a popular singer who recorded his own songs, as well as songs written by others from the mid-1930s through the mid-1950s. Mercer's songs were among the most successful hits of all time, including Moon River, Autumn Leaves, Hooray for Hollywood, and the acronym of the week, D-O-W-A-R. Pretty sure that stands for Dango Whaley always ranting. <laughs> John Herndon Mercer. That's amazing because when I picked that acronym, I'm like, okay, there's no way he can refer to any of us because there's not, there's no P, M, or oh, you got me. I didn't even think about the, the last names. Good yep. call. Good call. And accurate. That's funny. Yep. Yep. That was a good one. But no, that is not what it is. That is Days of Wine and Roses. Oh, damn it. I wanted to hear Dango Whaley always ranting. <laughs> and speaking, and, and ha that has a tie into this week, which is one of the reasons I chose it as the acronym, because that movie, Days of Wine and Roses, where that song came from, starred Jack Lemmon and the uh, the female from this this week's movie, The Omen, uh, Lee Remick. Lee, Lee Remick, yeah. Yep, oh, wow. she was in Days oh, of Wine oh. and Roses. That's, that's, that was her Oscar-winning role. Yeah, Nice. 
Ah, he wrote the lyrics to more than 1,500 songs, including compositions for movies and Broadway shows. He received 19 Oscar nominations and won four Best Original Song Oscars. So he technically, 1,500 songs, he could have written something, something Whaley granting. Yeah. (laughs) And it just never got produced. Or It's not a a 0% chance with him. Yeah. Him and Steve Allen, between the two of them, they've written most of the songs. (laughs) <laughs> most of all of them very man <laughs> all right so moving on to movies the number one movie in the land was the omen which grossed four million two hundred and seventy three thousand eight hundred and eighty six dollars in its first week hmm. 20th century fox's biggest opening weekend at the time it spurned a re-release of the exorcist which took the number one spot again for one week a month later not surprised Smart move, though, and it's pretty pretty smart. Yeah the uh, the thing is the omen was made for just around four million. Wow! Oh, yeah, technically a bust. Well, then it went on to do I want to say worldwide sixty three sixty five million. Yeah, I was going to say when you make your entire budget back in one week, that's not a bust. Yeah, that's true. I wouldn't even think this was one week. Yeah, that's true. I was thinking that was like all it took in. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Got it. Oh no, no, yeah, that was just the first, the first run. I wrote this. I forgot that. That's what happens when I write this ahead of time, Mike. <laughs> all right, Sir William Stanley Baker was a Welsh actor and film producer. He was known for his rugged appearance and intense persona. Uh, he was one of the top British male film stars of the late 1950s. Following national service in the Royal Army Service Corps after the Second World War, he befriended actor Richard Burton and began appearing in film and television roles. He played the lead role in Hell Drivers and a supporting role in The Guns of the Navarone. He was producer and lead actor in the film Zulu. Baker's performance in Yesterday's Enemy was nominated for a BAFTA. And was nominated for a Primetime Emmy Award for his turn in the BBC serial, How Green Was My Valley. He was posthumously awarded a knighthood in 1976 because he died before the investiture ceremony. A heavy smoker, he developed lung cancer and died on June 28th. Oh, that sucks. I remember Zulu. What are these spears? They're so tiny. Are they for ants? Yeah, that was pretty funny. That's what? That's an idiot. That's Zululander. Zululander. Uh, Right. Right. But why native models? (laughs) Yeah, I was tripping up on that one a little bit because so many of his films were adapted into like parody titles. Right. Uh, And I I kept having to like stop myself from saying uh, the wrong one. Yeah. Yeah. The Guns of Navarone, obviously, you know, we, most most of us know that reference from Pulp Fiction, of course. Mm-hmm. Mm. See, I was a big fan of that movie before uh, Pulp Fiction. For a long time, it was my favorite war movie. Mm. I've never actually seen it. Oh, dude. It's like, I, I think the only uh, classic war movie that replaced it later was The Great Escape. But like, if you've seen Great Escape and Guns of the Navarone, you've got this like, uh, World War II epic with big casts. Like, that's all you'd ever need for that category. Dirty Dozen. Mm. 
A dirty Dozen is good, but I'd say that the other two blow it out of the water. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're walking into Guns and Navarone with uh, Gregory Peck, David Niven, and Anthony Quinn. Yeah, and, and Dirty Dozen's more of just like a straight-up fun action movie, whereas like Great Escape and Guns of the Neverwood is a bit more on the serious side of things. And like ambiance and things like yeah. that. And, yeah, and Guns is all, is almost like World War II by way of heist movie. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. All right, maybe I'll check it out. All right. Uh, finally, in movies, Margaret Florence Henrik, Herrick was an American librarian and the executive director of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. In 1971, the Academy's library was named the Margaret Herrick Library in her honor. Herrick is generally credited with naming the Academy Award an Oscar, declaring the statuettes look just like my Uncle Oscar. She died on June 21st. Absorbed. Her Uncle Oscar wandered around naked with a sword? Well. It's Hollywood. You know, yeah. All right. Yeah. You know, librarians. <laughs> I do actually. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I know several strangely. Yeah. They all have bald, naked uncles with swords. It's weird. <laughs> As they do. So TV top shows in the land on this week were happy days, Laverne and Shirley mash and Charlie's angels. Whew. That's good. At. Yeah, that's yeah. a good, good evening of watching. Also, born June 22nd, Michael Patrick O'Brien is a comedian, writer, and filmmaker. In his five years at Saturday Night Live, he served as a writer and performer and still sometimes contributes on short film comedy skits. In 2018, he created the comedy series AP Bio, starring Glenn Howerton and Patton Oswald. But is Every- it any good, Patrick? Right. Yeah, actually, it's 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 entertaining. I watched the I first season. Say, yeah. Every uh, trailer I see for that makes it look hilarious, and I've never watched it. It's it's pretty good. I, I I will admit that. I don't know why I didn't go back and watch it, but yeah, the first season was enjoyable. Oh. All right. Brett Peter Tarrant McKenzie ONZM. What does that mean? Junior. New Zealand Order of Merit. I don't oh, know why okay. it's not in that order, but that's what it means. Okay. Official New Zealand order of merit. Oh, okay. Order. No, okay. no. It, like, order it's literally, New Zealand. It's, it's one of, it's gotta be one of those things where like it, in a different language or something, it, it's yeah. the acronym. Yeah. All right. So anyway, this dude born June 29th is a New Zealand musician, comedian, and actor. He's best known for one half of the musical comedy duo flight of the Concords, yep. along with his partner, Jermaine Clement active since 1998 the duo released their most recent comedy special, Live in London, in 2018. Primarily a musician, Mackenzie has worked as a songwriter and music supervisor for film and television, including The Muppets and Muppets Most Wanted. He won an Academy Award for the Best Original Song for Man or Muppet. As an actor, he portrayed elves in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit film trilogies. Have you guys never seen Flight of the Concords? Come on now. Yeah, I've seen uh, so, several episodes, not all of them. Uh, Brit. Nope. Brit. Yeah. I have not seen it. I'm the hippopotamus. <laughs> Too well, many dicks on the dance floor. Too many dicks. I will say Man or Muppet is a great freaking song. If you haven't seen Flight of the Concords, I will say, and Josh will, it sounds like, maybe agree, that you should watch it. It's fantastic. Oh, yeah. It, it is. I haven't watched nearly as much as I wish I'd watched. It is uh, Every episode I've seen has been great. Am yep, I a man? Then I'm a muppet of a man. 
Well, and there's a direct uh, through line from uh, Flight of the Concords to stuff like, uh, oh, shoot, the, the vampire. Uh, what we do um, in the shadows. Yeah, what we do in the shadows. There's a lot of shared DNA between them. Yep. A lot. All right. And moving on to sports. Oh, boy. Um, Pamelalo Pami Mbagangwa was born June 26th. I defy any of you to do that better. Uh, you're, you did fine. <laughs> a Zimbabwean former cricketer, he was a right-arm fast bowler who played 15 test matches and 29 one-day internationals for Zimbabwe between 1996 and 2002. After being dropped from the international side after the 2002 Champions Trophy, he took up work as a cricket commentator for television, and he has remained in that line of work since. He holds the unique distinction of being the only batsman to have scored exactly the same amount of career runs in two formats, ODIs and tests, with 34 runs each apiece. Given a qualification of 20 innings, Mbangwa has the lowest batting average, 2.0, of all test cricketers. He is also currently regarded as one of the best international cricket commentators. So, so wait, is it good to have a low batting average in cricket? No, he, so he was not very good. He was one of the worst of the pros, but he's definitely one of the best of the commentators since he's retired. Oh, and I'm, okay. I'm guessing it's, it's Bangwa. I'm, I'm thinking the M is silent, maybe. Oh yeah, it might. Be, yeah, but like, like in the in the dialect, it's in it's probably like a, a very 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 slight M, but like almost silent. Yeah, like 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 this. I can't really like a. Mangwa. Mangwa. Yeah, Mangwa. Like, yeah, exactly. It's like a, not natural to our dialect to, to get that sound up. But Trevor Noah could kill it, I'm sure. Because, like, Shudigatwa, who's the new doctor, it's spelled N C U T I. And I, I always thought it was like Nkuti, but it's, it's Shudi. Shudi Shudi. So I'm guessing it's that it's Mangwa. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, I mean, that's probably a better pronunciation than the way I did it for sure. No, yeah. Uh, hey, I was. I've had. I'm still looking <laughs> I, at. Yeah, I'm, what, I'm not going to say either one of us is correct because I have no real. Pop idea. me. So. Just call him Pommy. <laughs> now this one I do know. Muhammad Ali versus Antonio Inoki, billed as the War of the Worlds, was a fight between American professional boxer Muhammad Ali and Japanese professional wrestler Antonio Inoki, held Here. in J Tokyo, Japan, on June 26th. Ali was the reigning WBC WBA heavyweight boxing champion. And Inoki was staging exhibition fights against champions of various martial arts in an attempt to show that pro wrestling was the dominant fighting discipline. The fight itself, which was fought under special rules, is seen as a precursor to modern mixed martial arts. The majority of the fight saw Inoki on his back, kicking Ali's legs 107 times. Holy shit. Refereed by Gene LaBelle, the result of the fight, a draw, has long been debated by the press and the fans. Now, so yeah, Gene, this, this was a huge event at the time. So we can talk about this because I know a lot about this thing. So go ahead. Gene no. LaBelle sounds like a familiar name. Should I know him as a referee? He is a, he is a famous referee. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Because the name sounded familiar. And I, that yeah, he's still, he's still in, in business today, refereeing fights. Oh, he's got to be pretty old. Yeah. He's well known. He doesn't do it much anymore, but yeah, he especially in like the you know the nineties and early two thousands, he was he did a lot of the heavyweight fights. So, okay, so it was a draw, and it, it, the, the two judges ruled a uh, split decision. You know, one ruled for one, one ruled for the other, and Gene Labelle, according to the rules, had to uh, decide the tie, and he ruled it a draw. 
so that both both of them could save face because the whole stink behind the whole thing was uh, before the fight, Ali and, and Inoki's people all met and to discuss the rules of what they were going to do because Ali agreed to fly to Tokyo and, and fight him, you know, for a large amount of money. And they were worried, you know, he was going to get fucked up by some, you know, you know, like like they're like the the scene in Rocky Four when Thunderlips fucked up, you know, Rocky Balboa. They thought that was going to happen, but you know, in real life, and so they they took. There's a whole big discrepancy. There's been like some you know people's biographies. There's been different whatever. Nobody really knows the truth of it other than the people that were there. But like some people say that they said to Ali, you know, uh, you can't uh, you can't kick him. You uh, you can't. Uh, throw him to the ground. You can't do this. You can't do that. And, and he said, well, you're pretty much telling me it's, it's like telling Ali that he can't take jabs at him. It's like, you've just basically taken away all his main attacks. And they're like, well, we're not going to do this if you're going to hurt him. And so, and, and then there are some people that said the Muslims came up to Anoki and his camp and everything and said, if you lay a finger on him, we will kill you. And so that's why he laid on the ground and only kicked him to make sure he didn't put a finger on him because he took it literally. And then the other the other side of the camp is Bret Hart, the the famous wrestler who was in Enoki's camp at the time in in training, claims that just nothing at all happened. That was just the style he chose to use to avoid being punched by Ali. So, and then they they basically you know when he just, when he declared it a draw, you know uh, Labelle basically gave both sides the, a way to save face and say that they didn't lose because Ali could claim that he was cheated. And Anoki could say that he was never allowed to fight the way he wanted to or could. So uh, I'll tell you, if they told me to get in the ring with Muhammad Ali, I'd lay on my back and flail my legs too. <laughs> but yeah, it, it actually fucked up Ali's legs for his entire career. Like he got a couple of blood clots and like, you know, really? he always claimed it wasn't as bad, but like he, I mean, yeah, he, he had actual mobility that leg from that point on. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating. Crazy. Uh, that's cool. So that that's pretty much the the story on that. Play us off, keyboard Joel. All right. The year is June twenty fifth, nineteen seventy six. The movie is The Omen. The synopsis: Mysterious deaths surround an American ambassador. Could the child that he is raising actually be the Antichrist? The devil's own son? Bum, bum, bum. Spoiler. I yes. to say yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All signs point to yes. So this is directed by Richard Donner, who would Ooh. go on. Yeah, I know, right? Never knew this guy. Who would go on to make Superman 1 and 2, Goonies, Lady Hawk, uh, and, digging back, four episodes of the Banana Splits Adventure Hour. Weird. <laughs> right? La, la, la. La la la, one banana, two banana, three banana, four. Mancus, Dominus, banana splits. You know what? Honestly, when you, you if you've actually watched the Banana Splits Adventure Hour, it kind of makes sense why he did the Omen. They're not that it's more of a parallel. Yeah, I mean that's how they did the reboot for Banana Splits. Is they were one of the first to do that horror version of the uh, children's classic. Yeah, I gotta watch that. I still have not seen that. It's it's okay. I was going to say, I was sure you had seen that of all of us. Yeah. Yeah. Laura and I watched it because, you know, it was the closest thing to a Five Nights at Freddy's movie. And 
the Nick Cage one wasn't out yet. And um, it's okay to watch once. It feels kind of like a sci-fi movie with a bit more blood and guts, but it was a little weird because they're like, it's all for you, Flegel. It's all for you. You know, and that was kind of weird, but yeah. All right. So some written by David Seltzer. 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 Who also did stuff like Bird on a Wire. Willy Wonka on the Chocolate Factory, but he's uncredited for that one. Something called the Hellstrom Chronicle, 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 which doesn't is not as cool. Well, I don't know if it is. It's a whole like documentary about how insects could eventually take over the world. I mean, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's this uh, punchline, the one with Tom Hanks, where he's oh. a stand-up comedian. Yeah. Also, this uh, dude was born in Highland Park, Illinois. Hey, thought that was pretty cool. We know where that is. I've yeah. been there. But uh, weird stuff happened in this movie. We'll, we'll get to that after the trivia. But uh, this stars a one Gregory Peck in his hmm. six, he's 60 years old when he made this one. Uh, he's also been known for such things as Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird, ah. Joe Bradley and Roman Holiday. Honestly, one of my favorite Right there. And then Joseph Mengel in The Boys from Brazil. That's what you want to do. That's a twist right there. And Spellbound. Ingrid Bergman, Gregory Peck. That's just great stuff. Wasn't he in 12 Angry Men? Or am I thinking of... Oh, no. I'm thinking of... uh, Sorry. You're thinking of Henry Fonda. Mm. Yeah. And To Kill a Mockingbird, I could see why you'd mix those up. Which is just a brilliant piece of filmmaking and a great book. What's Mm -hmm. funny is I had neither seen the movie nor read the book until about three, four years ago. Really? Didn't have to do it in high school? No. uh, That was the normal English uh, assignment, and I was in AP all four years. Oh, that that tracks. Yeah, I remember in high school, I was the- You have to actually dissect a mockingbird. (laughs) (laughs) And then read it. Read, read, read. Now, too, I remember when I was in school, we did The Kill a Mockingbird, and I was the only person in the class who knew who Gregory Peck was. Oh. I know. It was like, oh, yeah, Gregory Peck. You know, you know Roman Holiday. And the teacher's like, you know Gregory Peck? Everyone's like, oh, hey, Tusky knows Gregory Peck. Blah, blah, blah. Shut up, fuckers. Anyway. Um, Lee Remick. <laughs> <laughs> no lingering problem from that guns. one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Carl wasn't a gun nut. That's all. <laughs> Uh, Lee Remick as Catherine Thorne. You may know her for such things as Anatomy of Murder. Another great freaking movie. Uh, Days of Wine and Roses, where she played Kirsten Arson Clay. And The Wheeler Dealers, where she played opposite James Garner. And Days of Thunder, where she played Tom Cruise's car. I'm not sure if that made that better or not. I don't know where you're going with that, dude. Days of Wine uh, and Roses. It was a sequel. David Warner playing the photographer Jennings. You don't know don't David you dare Warner. dare edit out that silence, Mike. I am not editing out that silence. He <laughs> deserves every moment of that silence. So, David Warner as Sark from Tron, Dr. Wren from In the Mouth of Madness, uh, Chancellor Gorka. I mean, just if you don't know who David Warner is, you are in the wrong podcast. I'll tell you that right now. What's yep, funny I is like, go. I didn't know his name, but I was like, I've seen this guy everywhere. Oh yeah. 
Yeah, he's all over the freaking place and just pulled off a great uh, role as Jennings in this one, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, probably the best part of the movie. Mm-hmm. No, take nothing away from Gregory Peck. And probably the best death scene, in my opinion. But Well, we have words on that. But <laughs> <laughs> Billy Whitelaw as Mrs. Baylock. Now, you may know her as Mrs. Baylock from The Omen, but also Joyce Cooper from the movie Hot Fuzz. She was one of the uh, townspeople, the the blonde with the uh, side-loading uh, machine gun at the end. Oh, such oh, a good yeah. movie. Yeah. What's funny is, like, good. I, ag- I agree with you, but I think it's my least favorite of the Cornetto trilogy. Really? Even even at, at you, World's End? You preferred At World's End to? I did. Ah. Huh. I think the first, like, ha- uh, third of At World's End is fucking hilarious. But something towards the middle and the end lose me for a bit, and it wins me back. But not my—that's my third favorite. No. All right. So then Harvey Stevens as Damien, who is known as—I mean, also known for Damien—and in the Omen, two thousand and six, as one of the tabloid reporters. He has a cameo. oh, that's yeah. a fun cameo. Yeah, he—that's uh, actually this. He was in some TV movie called Gogwin the Savage where he played opposite David Carradine. Well, not opposite, but why don't I know this? David Carradine, Lynn Redgrave, Ian Richardson. Man, I got to watch this. Anyway, uh, Patrick Troughton as Father Brennan. Now, you may know uh, Patrick Troughton as he played Clove in Scars of Dracula and Phineas in Jason and the Argonauts. And he also played uh, more recently, well, for him, in 1987, Inspector Morse, uh, he played the character uh, George Jackson. Are you screwing and with us? I'm 100% screwing with you. <laughs> yeah. he, specifically Joel, because I know he's like sweating right now. He, he was one of the doctors. He was the second doctor, the Cosmic Hobo. Mm-hmm. Cosmic Hobo, yeah. Okay. For what show? The Nanny. Yep. <laughs> Just reference episode 200, part one. <laughs> Anyway, that and was finally, way more Peter Griffin, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I did it, I was like, that wasn't very good. We could have just moved on, sir. Oh, no. If you try <laughs> to turn Fran Drescher into Peter Griffin, I'm going to call it out. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Martin Benson as Father Spiletto. <laughs> Who outside of this was Kralaholm in The King and I. <laughs> And in uh, Goldfinger, he was the henchman solo. It's, oh, what are you laughing at? It sounds like a like a bad eighties cop show, Father Stiletto, and it's oh, it kind of <laughs> does. Stiletto. No, but and Father Stiletto is a is an a, yeah he, yeah he's driving. Yeah, it's, it's like an any special, but he's a priest, and he solves mysteries and like there's like uh, like an undercurrent kind of like already, a uh, they already like did a, that show that had Tom Bosley. It's called the like cross Col- of the switchblade. <laughs> kind of like Kolchak the Night Stalker, but with a priest with a switchblade. Jeez. Or a stiletto, I mean. Father stiletto, yeah. Or, or no, he works with a with a prostitute. Yeah, they're a team. Father stiletto. Anyway. Oh, father slash stiletto. That would be what yeah. it is. Yeah. Or, anyway. or, or he's, a, he's a priest slash crossdresser. Yep. Yep, there you go. And he sells mysteries. Father stilettos. You gotta excuse me. I'm writing down the time for this so I can take all that bullshit out. <laughs> That's gold, Jerry. 
gold. All right, so Harvey Stevens as Damien was char- was largely chosen, largely losing for his role. <laughs> uh, so here's the deal: Richard Donner they had they had chosen Harvey Stevens, who was a Cockney kid. He was actually like green eyed blonde kid as Damien. And Richard Donner was like, yeah, I know you chose him for this. I want to make sure that he can really like do the attack scene. You know, when, when Damien, they're going to the wedding and Damien freaks out because they're going to go into the, they're going to go to the church. Uh-huh. Oh yeah. So he told little Harvey attack me. And Harvey went and kicked him square in the nuts. As you do. And Richard Donner right. said, I think he's the one. And that's how we got chosen. Nice. That's how I get most of my jobs. Just kicking people in the nuts. Kicking people in the nuts. That's why you're on your fourth job this year. (laughs) That's my purse. I don't know you. (laughs) I don't know you. (laughs) That's a sick reference, bro. Right? Oh, my God. All right. So also, according to at least one biography of Gregory Peck, he took this role at at a huge cut in salary at a mere $250,000, but was also guaranteed 10% of the film's box office gross. When it went on to gross more than 60 million in the U S alone, it became the highest paid performance of Gregory Peck's career. Wow. Yeah. Well-deserved. Right. Cheers. Uh, in legend, one he, of the reasons he also why, got the merchandising rights that didn't go too far. Oh, but the Happy Meal—he made a couple bucks. Jeez. I think I got the toy. <laughs> Every Happy Meal comes with a free soul. Jeez, uh, one of the reasons why Gregory Peck accepted the role of a tortured father, conflicted with guilt, was because he had not been around when his son Jonathan had committed suicide in 1975. Out. That, Damn. Yeah, that's a that's a theory. Uh, one of the other things that I have heard is that after his son commits suicide, that his agent was like, look, you gotta, you know, you can't stay at home and just go deeper into this. You got to keep working, got to keep doing stuff. And of course, they sign him up for a movie where a guy tries to kill his son. Right. You got to work through <laughs> this. No one reads the script. Yeah. <laughs> We're just going to throw you into the deep end here. So this is a... Oh, I was going to say, I was imagining the McDonald's commercial where Damien's sitting down and he's got the Happy Meal, you know, that it's an all-black box with a pentagram on it, and he opens it up, and the nanny's standing there, and she's like, it's all for you, Damien. It's all for you. And she's, like, pointing at the food in the box. and and Yeah, that was worth going back for. It was. Yeah. (laughs) It really was. We almost missed that. You know, you know, I don't. The the thing is, is that Josh shitting on your joke is funnier than the joke itself. So no, I have to leave it in. <laughs> That's what she said. All right. So is it the first viewing for anybody? That's what you were asking. I was. I wasn't one hundred percent certain if it was a first viewing for me, because I think this is another one of those movies that my screwball uncle tried to take me to go see. I may have seen this in the theater. Well, and that is a legit question because, like, it would be easy to assume you'd seen this before. We've watched, I don't want to call it a parody, but, like, Good Omens is Mm -hmm. basically a retelling of this, and we've already done a show about it. Yep. Now, the other reason I think I've seen this is, for those of you out there, if we have any 
millennials or Zoomers out there, CBS movie of the day was like Wild West. You get home from work, get home from work, get home from school. You you get home for a long day at work. Yeah, long day at work. 1982. (laughs) Yeah. Guess finish slopping the hogs. Working in the crayon factory. Like, like, this is one of those things, like, you'd stay home from school, you were sick, you watch, spend the whole morning watching Price is Right. In the afternoon, they had the afternoon CBS movie of the night, or the day. And it would be like, it could be something really happy, or it could be like, Sybil. Yeah, or, or the burning bed or something. The, yeah, well, yeah, maybe not the burning. Yeah, the burning bed or... Um, uh, I watched the, the burning bed on a sick day. Don't tell me it couldn't be the burning I'm not, bed. Not, not at this point, but Trilogy of Terror. I saw Trilogy, Trilogy of Terror with that little freaking demon doll way too many times because of CBS movie of the day. Mm-hmm. I think I saw this. Now, looking at it again, because if it was 76, I was only four years old, and I'm pretty sure my uncle would have gotten in trouble trying to bring a four-year-old <laughs> to see the film. In. Thought it was a kid's movie. It might yeah, have been a reissue. It's got a kid in it. Could have been. Um, but yeah, I think I saw this on the movie the movie of the afternoon or whatever it was. And they don't cut shit on that. I mean, it wasn't I mean, it, nearly as edited for TV as you thought it was. <laughs> I have the, the box set with uh, all the original films and the remake as well. Okay. Yeah. Huh. I have to say, I really enjoyed this movie. This was, I could see why this did so well. I could see why in the time that it came out, like right after The Exorcist with uh, Rosemary's Baby still hanging in people's minds, why this did so well. And Gregory Peck signing on to it gave it the legitimacy that it needed to be great. Well, and that's the, the big the big linchpin, I think, with this movie is that you've got this cast with these great actors, but then you stick at the top of the list this amazing actor that's been doing this for decades that just, it's like, it's like, okay. Uh, you know, here's Henry Fonda in an action movie. Go, you know, he's in the new, right. he's the new Rambo or whatever. I don't know. It just, it's a, it's a strange thing. And I think Patrick, you said this is one of, if not your favorite horror movie. Is that accurate? Yeah, it's one of my favorite horror movies. Yeah. yeah right. That's what I thought. Now, the other side of it is also, this is, um, Jerry Goldsmith. The, did the soundtrack for this and he, was the one who kind of launched the whole people chanting in Latin along with the music type of thing. Okay. So he was kind of a, yeah, really big um, flip to that. And there was somebody I'm trying to find. Okay. Robert Munger. (laughs) Got to scroll down to the additional crew. Robert Munger was the religious advisor to the producers. Now, Robert Munger was actually the guy who came up with the idea for The Omen, from what I have read. And that the world was getting so screwy, post-Vietnam, uh, <clears throat> all that stuff going on at, you know, in the 70s, kind of sucked type of time. Wanted to make this, came up with this idea, and then pitched it, and they had, uh, what's his name, come in and write it. And then they went from there. Now, one of the things that he did do is before they started principal shooting was sat down with the producers and did the, you have to be ready for whatever is going to happen because you're talking about the son of Satan. He's going to try and stop you from letting people know about this, which of course everyone's kind of like, yeah, okay, whatever, man. So on the way to England, (laughs) On the way to England, 
Gregory Peck's, David Seltzer, and um, Harvey Bernard. All three of their planes got hit by lightning on the way over to England. Now, it's not, uh, from what I've read, it's not uncommon for a plane to get hit by lightning like once in a while. It's not totally weird. It, but it's, it's not unheard of. By, by it's any not way. unheard of. But to happen to three people flying over on oh, to do a movie about Satan, this had, a, um, had like the curse thing going to it. That there was also a moment where they wanted to take um, aerial uh, photography, pr- like... Uh, what do they call it? Um, setup shots. Principal photography. Yeah, that's sort of like they, they wanted pictures of England, so they they uh, cast they uh, cast they rented a a plane and said, okay, hey, we're going to take it off on this day. We'll get everybody in there, and we're going to fly out just take pictures of London. The people that were running the charter service called them and said, sorry, we can't do it this day. We have another flight that we want to do, but we will give you. This day, and they move the flight from, you know, Monday to Tuesday. Monday, the flight took off, ran into a flock of birds, crashed, and hit a station wagon, and eight people died. So there's a lot of... How was that a curse? That that worked out for you. They were supposed to be on that flight. (laughs) See, that's the thing. I'm like, they were supposed to have been on that plane, and they didn't. I call that uh, a blessing. All right? Uh, Look it out, Satan. Harvey Bernhard, the I think producer or writer, one of those two, went the hotel that he was at was bombed by the IRA while he was there. So they, you know, they made an announcement like, "Hey, nobody's nobody's talking about no curse type of thing." In fact, uh, th- um, Gregory Peck said to all the producers, "Everybody, hey, you know what? Let's all go out to dinner. They're all going out on my treat." Took him out to they dinner. All got food poisoning. <laughs> No, five minutes before they were supposed to be there, that place got bombed. So I don't know if they were, like you said, I'm not sure if it was a curse or it was a, you know, dodging, dodging it something. It was just the IRA. Yeah, I couldn't, you know, IRA threw them, got that flock of pigeons up in the air. Bus yeah. pigeons. Well, not everything has to be, you know, connected. Just I know, but it's a but it's theater. It's, I mean, it's essentially theater, and you know how they talk about some of the cursed movies and all that. Yeah, but, I mean, yeah. I get it, but you know, yeah, I get the appeal of it. Yeah, for sure, it's a it's a fun story, especially for a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Right, it sells it. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And then the other thing that I had read was that at the very end of the movie, when um, Harvey Stevens, when Damien turns to the camera and smog gives that smile. Mm-hmm. Spoilers. <laughs> Spoilers, he survives. Uh, they were filming it. They they had filmed multiple endings to it. Uh, the, the studios had said, hey, they had original ending where the mom, uh, where Catherine, Robert, and Damien were all in the coffins, and they had all died. Then they did another one where they were trying to get a uh, sequel going. That's the one they went with. And um, apparently Richard Donner, when they were filming that, and... Uh, Harvey Stevens turned around. He was shouting from behind the camera, don't you smile. Don't you smile. No smiling. And of course, when you say that to a little kid, you get the grin from him. So that's how they got that really cool ending. Oh, so he purposely told him not to smile. So he would. Oh yeah. 
And Gregory Peck was was notorious for not wanting to smile on command. So Mm. it worked out really well. Mm. Really? Nothing? Yeah, no, I saw what you did there. I just. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Don't want to encourage it. The problem was he wasn't even in the final shot, so it doesn't really work as a joke. That you know of. He was in the coffin. Uh, Well, he probably wasn't. I mean, let's be honest. He's not that big of a method actor. <laughs> my character is dead, so bury me. I don't. I don't think Gregory Peck is a method actor at all. He's just right. That's yeah. <laughs> what do you want me to do? Okay, I will do that. But no, I mean, for, yeah, I think uh, for, this is. By the way, this is the fifth oh, time I've seen this movie. Just to answer that question really? earlier, yeah. So you're a big old fan. Yeah, I like this movie a lot. Huh. I like one of the things I like about it. You know, spoiler alert <laughs> is the fact that you know, the the good guys don't win. Hmm. And you know that was that was new. The first time I saw this, it was new to me. I was like, "Oh, like oh, oh, the devil one, interesting." Yeah, it's more common in the horror genre for sure. Right. Indeed. But this was, you know, I mean, the first time I saw it, I was probably like ten years old, I think, to varying right. degrees, of course. But sure. Now this actually went on to do Damien the Omen two, and then what do they call it? Even Omener? No, no. What do you mean? No. For the uh, Omen 3? The Omen 3, the final was, conflict. Yep. And, and there was an... More ominous. Too well, fast, too omen. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was the Omen 4, The Awakening, which was made for television about a little girl. Shut up. Well, the cool thing is, is that Omen 3, Damien is played by a very young Sam Neill. Yep. One of his... Oh! Yeah. Yeah, he's it's, like a president. He's he's president and a cult leader at the same time. It's 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 do. decent. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, it's not to the level of the Omen, but uh, it's actually the the the. It's decent. It's so it's watching, good for a cash in sequel if you're. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's better than you would expect, but it's not as good as you would hope. It's it's it. Don't watch it if you're not already invested in the Omen itself. Correct. But yeah, huh. no, I, 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 all around the board. I mean, from what I remember to this, there were seg- segments of it, like the scene where uh, the mom fell off the uh, balcony, which, by the way, had to be rewritten multiple times because Lee Remick, after all the explosions and plane crashes and everything, they were like, all right, Lee, we just want you to get up on this table next to this balcony. And she was like, the hell I am. <laughs> she literally she literally turned it down she's like you're re- we are rewriting this entire scene and uh that's why you got the fishbowl dropping because originally it was supposed to be her hitting the floor and they did this kind of like um gurney rig i guess some way f- to make her some sort of effect where they had her hooked up to something and brought the floor up quickly to make her look like she had fallen hmm. yep it's a clever Which, little special effect yeah it's a very 70s yes uh death and speaking of 70s death, Joel Jennings' death. Yes, let's talk about it. Go ahead. No, you start. You I just I just love the I think the reason I like this death in particular so much in this film is I mean, we've all seen beheadings, but the it's almost like a final destination thing where the, you know the truck goes into reverse, it goes back, the glass slides. But what makes it 
different to me anyway is or that makes it kind of cool is that once his head gets cut off they had some sort of filament wire or something in the head so it would roll across the glass before it fell and then the body collapses down to its knees and then falls backwards and it all looks i mean the head itself is a little dodgy but it's you know 70s a little dodgy uh, well, I mean, it's 70s low-budget horror. Like, f- by that metric, it looked pretty good. Yeah. yeah. And the fact that the body falls and then, you know, hits the ground, it, it, it just adds this extra level of kind of... Because typically, if you see a head pop off, you know, you see the head fly and you maybe see the neck, and then you see the body on the ground. But mm. it added a little extra realism to it. It was just kind of a cool effect. I will say that for 70s horror, that was actually better than I expected. You know, I now what did you guys think about the um, the baboon scene where they went to the zoo? Oh, so cool. I love the way they had the animals react to him wherever he went. Uh, That was what stood out to me that I forgot because I've seen this, but probably not for 15, 20 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, the animal scenes and the storm right before the priest uh, gets speared were both visually uh, incredible. Probably oh, my yeah. favorite parts of the movie. Now, the baboon scene. <laughs> ready for this one? So, I don't know. Um, you know how baboons are very, for animals, family-oriented, like pack-oriented creatures. So, if one's missing, they're going to notice it. Now, if you sedate one of the younger ones and put them in the back of the car and then drive that car through the baboons... The baboons are going to lose their shit and start attacking the car because they see one of their younger baboon clansmen or whatever they want to call them. That's literally what they did. Yeah, don't call them clansmen. Yeah, clansmen. (laughs) It's a try. I don't even know. Whatever. The baboon. What do you call a group of baboons? Comrades. Comrades. No, that's even worse. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, I don't think the- that's worse, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, they they, they sedate a baby a baby baboon, put it in the back of the of this car, and then drive the car through all the baboons. The baboons don't know where the baby went. They're losing their shit to begin with. They notice it in the car, and Lee Remick actually said during this scene, she's not acting. She is terrified. I would because be. right because these things are like they want their baby back, and that's yeah, I want my baby back baby because back, baby a back. I want my... a troop of baboons. I, ah, I looked up the collective a troop now. of baboons. All right, good, got that down. So this troop of baboons is losing their collective shit because a baby's in the back of the station wagon. <laughs> Call so Father Stiletto. Of, so this Reich of baboons. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now. With the whole curse thing, John Richardson is the set designer and the guy who did the decapitation scene in The Omen. While they went on to go eventually shoot A Bridge Too Far, he was in the car with his wife, Liz Moore, got into a car accident. His wife was decapitated in the car accident. And he swears in an interview that the thing that he saw before he like got thrown into the uh, uh, ambulance and everything was a sign that said the town of Omen O-M-M-E-N was 66.6 kilometers away. 
Good night, folks. I don't even know what to make of that. Yeah, I mean, that'd be kind of easy to prove or disprove if you can find that sign or not. I mean, and his wife was literally decapitated in the car accident. Why would he? No, I'm just saying if that sign exists, you know, I mean, if it doesn't exist, it's pretty easily debunked. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not saying his wife didn't get her head cut off. I'm just saying. And if that sign doesn't exist, I'm letting the dude have that one. I'm just saying. Yeah, right. I mean, it's not a, a battle I really want to fight. I'm like. Let's prove your story wrong about how your wife died. Yeah. Yeah, her head was probably already loose. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that was great. Yeah. (laughs) I love her all, even her loose head. (laughs) Ooh. And now for a woman with a prosthetic head. (laughs) It's funnier visually, of course, but Yeah, that's a joke that's well. uh, Fridge too far, fatty. The Simpsons right. reference, right. anyway. Yeah, Joel, Joel's having apparently having a stroke right now. <laughs> no, I'm just on to another topic. I'm, I'm doing I don't a separate show. This, this, there's decapitations outside of the movie. There's all this crazy shit going on. There's baboons losing their collective shit. It's- well, we should also mention the uh, the the initial. Oh, I was going to say the initial sequence where the nanny jumps off because that, oh yeah oh yeah. You're watching the movie and it starts out and you're like, okay, I, I kind of see where they're going. And she's up there, you hear her, and then you see her. And next thing you know, she's swinging through the glass window by the neck. It's kind of jarring, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a very effective sequence. Yeah, it, it that death scene and the whole uh, introduction of the hellhounds. Yes. Was another, which, which the Rottweilers, Patrick brought that up. You, do you know about that, Pat? What about them? The the Rottweilers were like in, more vicious than they in, originally anticipated. Oh no, I didn't. So know they that. took one of their babies and they sedated it, and then they put it <laughs> in Gregory's pants. <laughs> <laughs> and then when he was walking through, they got upset. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. The the got a, a Rottweiler baby in your pants, Gregory? Are you just happy to be here? Rough, rough. <laughs> <laughs> No, the uh, the stuntman who was, I think he was playing Gregory Peck during the scene where they got attacked at the uh, graveyard, was cautious about it. Then they did the first run of it, and he like got his arm uh, chewed up, even with the padding and everything on there. Yikes. And then they went back, and well, one of the one of the Rottweilers like refused to let him go. They had I don't know what they had to do to get the Rottweiler off, but. Um, <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> take your finger up its butt. Uh-oh. That'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> but they went back after they had done the scene and put like plates of steel, like stainless steel inside the arms and stuff where he was for the suit because the Rottweilers were so vicious that they were just like chewing the poor guy up. Just crazy pants, man. It's. What do you think about the big reveal of the uh, the mother? Six, six, six. Oh no, no, the mother in the grave. Having the, that kind of like animal. They didn't do a very good thing. job of explaining that in the first movie. They explained it much better in the second. Well, that's they did. because uh, when he says his mother was a jackal, he's half cut off in the original. 
Mm-hmm. Like you can make it out if you rewind, but it's real easy to miss. But that's what my, my point. Like, and they only make that one reference, and that's it. They, they at least said it a couple times in the in the remake mm-hmm. to make the point of it mm-hmm. that it's not just a metaphor. Incidentally, how terrible of a person are you? I mean, I guess maybe if you're in a in that situation and you're just desperate, but your wife loses the baby. And your first instinct is like, oh, all right, so there's a baby here that's loose, doesn't have any parents, needs somewhere you to go. A, you got a free one, though, right? Yeah. <laughs> going to take it, going to give it to the mom and not tell her what happened. Be like, oh, here's our child. Meanwhile, your child's dead in in the, you know, disposable, however they dispose of of babies, they're going to incinerate it or whatever. Well, and you're like, you, dri- you drive it to another area and bury it in a very elaborate grave with no coffin right but i mean it's just like how how can you like move on from that and uh, i just uh, he's just a terrible human being is a cognitive dissonance is a hell of a thing sure and you're given a way out of your grief you're like this is a secret that only you will know uh the as soon as your child died this other one was born and the mother died it's a perfect solution god wants you to do this like, right. I, I, yeah, you're in giving, a way, you're giving I the, get it. The, the, the supposed stamp of approval by a holy man that you don't know is working for, for Satan at the, at the time. So mm-hmm. you, know, you just think he's, he's you know, God is speaking through him and giving you this baby. And you're like, okay, everything's going to be fine. We don't have to tell my wife. She'll be fine. Right. Don't need to upset the, the uh, fairer species, as they used to say back in the day, you know. You know, it was a, I, it was a simpler time, I guess. I don't know. I mean, we, you oh, ladies, were you, watching this. You didn't have to treat your wife like she was an actual person, you know, so. I turned to Suzanne and I'm like, would you be angry? She, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you don't let me finish. Oh, I know what you're going to ask. Well, then I have something bad to tell you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're not going to like the next part of this. I'm not your husband. I was um, replaced. Um, oh. That didn't make any sense. Yeah, but we're used to it, really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you guys got anything else for? Uh, one of the know? reasons I, I like this movie is why it's one of my favorite ones. It's it's just it's very atmospheric. They did a really good job at, uh, with the atmosphere through the through the cinematography, through the the soundtrack and everything. That the you know, I mean, I've mentioned before to you guys that you know that I, I like uh, a lot of operatic type music, and you know, this definitely had a lot of you know the operatic chanting and stuff, you know, Carmen mm. type stuff mm-hmm. in it, and. The, you know the acting was really good. I just there there was there's not a whole lot of like there, there are some, but there's not really a whole lot of weak spots in this movie. I just I just enjoy it as a as a tale as a story. And you know even though I'm not a uh, Christian anymore, back when I was a Christian, it was it even had the added layer of just being a little more creepy for the fact that I was a believer then. So this stuff was not just a story. It was kind of like you know okay this is this is my uh, what's the word I'm looking for my dogma I guess at the time. So, yeah, hmm. and it's iconic. It, it, yeah. You can tell when something feels a little old hat when you reread it and or rewatch it, and that's because it's been parodied and referenced so many times. Yeah, it's part of pop culture. You know, and some people talk about how oh, this isn't really that scary of a movie, and I'm like, I don't think the point of it is it of it is to be scary like a, like a Friday the 13th type of movie like a like a Blair Witch even it's not like a it's not like that kind of, it's just more of a 
spooky story that's kind of creepy and you know but it, i don't think it's set to be like a even an exorcist level scary yeah not like jump scares and all that stuff it's right it's not that kind of a, a horror movie it, it's almost kind of like the what we'd say uh japanese horror movies are now the back of the head horror you know just kind of stuff that lingers mm-hmm. you know that makes starts making you see stuff out of the corner of your eye type stuff it's all for you, Michael Damien. It's all for you. All right. So I guess we will uh, take a break and be right back and talk about the remake of The Omen from 2006. Yo. All right, we are back, and we are going to talk about the 2006, The Omen. Rundown on this one, pretty much the same thing. You know, American official realizes that his young son may literally be the devil incarnate. This one around is directed by John Moore, who's done such stuff as Max Payne, the remake of the movie Flight of the Phoenix, which I think we really need to do on the show. Yeah, I wouldn't mind that. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, shut up. And uh, Behind Enemy Lines. It was completely unnecessary. The first one was fine on its own. Well, so was the first Omen. I was going to say, you could make the case for this as well. But yeah. I, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll get to I think this. we probably should make the case for that, but we'll get there. Now, this is weird because it's written by... David Seltzer, exactly the same as before. Seltzer. So that was the only writing credit on this one. My guess is is that they just grabbed the script and said, let's run with it. Looks like there were a few changes to it, but for the most part, it it held it pace for pace. The story didn't change, just the telling of it did. Yeah. Yeah, that was not much different, but yeah, let's let's get through this before we dive in. This has uh, Lee Shriver as Robert Thorne, Julia Stiles as Catherine Thorne, Seamus Davy Fitzpatrick as Damien. Seamus. Seamus. Uh, Thomas Wooler as a two-year-old Damien. Amy Huck as Nanny. David Thules as Keith Jennings. Giovanni Lombardo Radici as Father Spilletto. Uh, Bamul Sark as the Pope and Marshall Cup as Ambassador Stephen Haynes, who blew the hell up in the very beginning. And um, I forgot to put it in here. Uh, yeah, uh, Farrow, obviously, one of the biggest. Yeah, that casting was brilliant. Oh yeah, I agreed. Honestly, so, I thought all the casting was really good. Like it, it is a uh, tough uh, act to follow with the original oh, also- casting. Pete Postlewaite is not in here either. That's true. Mm. Yeah, I like him a lot. Good call. Good call. I, I thought the cast on this was very well done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. Well, it was David. Well, we'll get to it. We go we'll skip over the get to the trivia and uh, during filming, Seamus was never told that his character was supposed to be the son of the devil. Uh, Julia Stiles has commented on it that because the filmmakers thought that he was too young to understand what was going on, but he really liked to make the Damien face. <laughs> so he made I the can angry. see that. Yeah. Yeah. Make the face. Urgh. 
I'm going to make the evil face. He made the little angry face, that sort of thing. There was no nut kicking in in uh, casting <laughs> this kid. Ah, I know, right? Uh, at around 19 minutes, Harvey Stevens, who portrayed Damien in The Omen in 1976, appeared in this remake as a tabloid reporter who asks Robert Thorne if the deceased nanny was on drugs. Okay. So, a little bit of a cameo there. A little bit, very bit. Pretty cool. Uh, also, Pierce Brosnan and Jim Carrey were considered for the role of Robert Thorne. Weird... I don't know. Jim Carrey can be really creepy when he wants to be. And then other times he's acting. (laughs) The number 23, he was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, this would have been very different with either of them. And I I, like Leif Schreiber is never going to be like my, oh, my God, I am going to see this movie because he's in it. But I'm never sad to see him. Right. Exactly. He wasn't. I mean. I mean, seriously, Gregory Peck is who you're going up against on that. I mean, right. The, the fact that he held his own uh, props mm-hmm. to him. Yeah. I was not he, disappointed by his performance as Robert Thorne in this movie. No, he's a hell of an actor. I, I like Leif Schreiber. Like if he's in a movie, I'm like, cool. I'm happy about that. But yeah, mm-hmm. he's not like a draw where I'm going to go run to the theaters because he's in it. No. Plus I like Julia Stiles. So, you know, but yep. I will say that, uh, I think this movie, it, while I don't think it did as well as the original, not nearly, had a lot of respect for the source material. I completely agree. And I think in terms of uh, making certain things clearer and in terms of the pacing it, and the effects, of course, because it's more modern, those are all upgrades. And some of the actors, obviously not Gregory Peck, also the performance was an upgrade. Mm-hmm. But like, I, it's not the original, and it, it's a straight retelling. Right. It is. It is pace for pace, scene for scene, a straight retell- retelling of the original movie. I will say that David Thules did a great dro- job as Jennings in this one. Yep. Is it Tulis? Is that how you say his name? Tulis. Thules. T H E W L A S. Yeah, I've that never that. heard anyone say it out loud. So. I mean, I assume like it's like Thames, you know, so I, that's where I get Tulis from. I'm not sure either. I just I, I like his work um, and he won me over initially. I, I always think of him as Lupin or Lupine. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just so, a fun, he's a great actor. Uh, one thing that did not work for me uh, in this, the, the uh, dream sequences that make uh, Damien more. uh Obviously demonic. The the supernatural. Yeah, that. like him with dancing around with a mask in his mother's dream seemed a little too much. It was it was a cool visual, but it, yeah, it didn't really fit the aesthetic of the the movie that or was of it, the story that much. Odd choice. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Well, and it was cool. That's right. It, it was like it was a fun scene to watch, but it, it was like it be- didn't belong in the movie. mm Hmm. I think they were trying really hard on a lot of the dream sequences to do the he's the devil. And just the jump scare thing. Too. Yeah. I mean, jump scares were big in the mid-2000s. So. Mm-hmm. Along with CGI death scenes, the um, the lightning okay. rod falling 
Not not the decapitation was pretty good. I thought that, and I don't think that was CGI. I think that was all practical. But the lightning rod falling through these strangely set up sideways stained glass windows. Yeah, why why was that mirror set up or that glass what? set up like that? I have no idea. Yeah, I would actually say that was one of the downgrades. I thought the storm and the impalement all looked better in the original. However, the burnt priest looked so much better. In this oh my one. god, that character was so creepy. I mean, he he was a hundred times better for somebody who survived a hospital fire. But yeah, I don't, Patrick. I don't get why they why they would store a a gigantic stained glass window, right? Horizontally, and also they're not they're not horizontally. Gonna put, they're not going to put a, an impaled priest as a large picture in the front of every newspaper. Right? That's the first thing we noticed. We're like, what? That the was hell the original too. Yeah, like, I, come I, on. Actually, I thought it was more realistic in the uh, remake because it was more of a uh, on the website sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But it was I thought it would, on, it would have been better if like he had just given him the article and then showed him the picture, like I procured this picture or whatever. Yeah. Versus, or to be versus, like the, yeah, the, the fucking opening, you know, in in seventy two point font, like here's a big old impaled person to start your day off. <laughs> two thirds of the front page is a, that's not how that's not how newspapers do it. Well, well but uh, that is the how the original. Does. That's how, how the original film went, and I thought it was more jarring in the original. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just think in general it was a bad choice for the movie. It's just not very realistic. Papers, I mean, they may they may even put that picture there, but they're going to put a censored mark over it or something, right? They're not gonna they're not gonna put open openly dead person gore on the front page of a paper. It's like a guy with a lance through his chest and forty eight pieces <laughs> of glass in his face. That's <laughs> just not gonna be. It's not gonna be the front page of a major newspaper. Unless we, it's David Blaine and he's fine, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Now, we didn't talk about this a lot, but there was, it was a small bit part. We had a little bit of uh, Dumbledore action in this one, too. Yep. Michael Gambon made an appearance. Oh, oh yeah. 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 Who was he? I didn't know. I don't know. He was the guy who uh, was at uh, Megiddo. Oh. Uh, yeah. Bugenhagen, yeah. 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 I didn't I didn't realize that was him. I Yeah. Wow. Great. I still think of him as the singing detective, but that's probably just me. <laughs> I guess no, I was kind of caught up with the story. I didn't even realize that was him. See, that's a good sign right there. You don't right? recognize exactly. that that sort of thing. I mean, and, and all in all, I I stepped into this. I had not seen this before the before watching it for the show, and I had stepped into it ready to hate it. Yeah, as I would. as you as we do often on this show, I was ready to say this is trash. But you know what? I really could not. It was. It was a good retelling. I think agree with Josh that the a little bit of the dream sequences that pointed the big finger at the devil uh, was a little over the top. But I think they did a really good job of retelling this movie. Well, and there's a way to retell the same story almost word for word, shot for shot in a lot of ways. And there's a there's a way not to. And and Psycho, the Gus Van Zandt version, did it wrong. This yeah, still made enough changes to make it its own film, even though it didn't depart too much from the source material. Um, so it ultimately kind of felt like the same story, but with a couple of tweaks, some better, some worse. One of my favorite tweaks was when uh, the nanny jumps out the window 
And one of the reaction shots are the Punch and Judy puppets. Right? Yes. yes. I did love that, yeah. That was cool. I thought that was pretty damn funny. And it, about- for some reason, it was, it was I don't know why, but it was a better choice to have her just like flap up against the wall than go through a window. I don't See, know I was, why. I was kind of mixed on that because I felt like the window was a bit more jarring because it was just one more level of like, you fucked. Yeah, but. I could see that. But I mean, the thud was so effective, I thought. I also thought while it was a bit part, the actress was a little better. Yeah. The, mm-hmm. There was a lot of that. It's like, it's hard to follow Gregory Peck, but almost in every other case, the acting, I thought the cast was an upgrade. And and yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of unfair to, I can't remember her name, I'm sorry, but the woman who played the nanny in the first one, it's unfair to her because, I mean, Mia Farrow being stunt cast is just, you're just not going to win. Mm-hmm. Right. I will tell you, Mia Farrow getting nailed by that car. Oof. Yeah. yeah. That was brutal. <laughs> like what? And Julia Stiles is a, a good actress. And like, I would say that the wife in the original was one of the weakest parts of the cast. Yeah. But only because yeah. just, just kind of by comparison, really. I mean, it's just, yeah. if you, she you wasn't have to find bad. Out. Yeah, exactly. No, I would, I wouldn't say I was dissatisfied with her. She's but, no like, Andy McDowell. <laughs> Damn right. Wait. Julia Stiles, I would actually say I'm more excited to see in a film than Leif Schreiber. Like, I still wouldn't go to the theater specifically to see her, but, like, I'm always happy when she's in something. Agreed. I'm not unhappy to see her in something, so, yeah. I guess I like her. I say I'm I'm also a little remiss not saying uh, Pete Postlewaith. Mm Mm-hmm. He as a priest, mm-hmm. a much more compelling man who's staring, man who is staring damnation in the eyes versus crazy pants priest from the previous one. Though I yeah. will say, if you're going to go see the guy who you think son is Satan, a little bit more leaden. Yeah, exactly. He he did a, that. They did a much better job of making that character someone that the ambassador would even talk to in the first movie. Gregory Peck has no reason to go to that park alone. Right. Yeah. It was a little crazy pants, a little bit of the, uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, you, you seem like you're, you're a couple tacos short of a combination platter. So I'm going to bring some security with me if I'm going to come at all. What do you think about the way the ambassador died in the very beginning? Oh yeah. Soaked in gasoline and, and exploded. Yeah. That's pretty rough. That was a rough one. I also noticed this for both of them. If you have to stop Satan from returning and you want to murder your kid, maybe don't attract every cop in the Tri-County area by busting through your front gate. Right. Right. Try not to get involved in a a a chase, in, in a police chase shootout. Yeah. All he had to do was very quietly take the kid to the church. It's so Not- easy to stab children if you don't get the uh, the, the attention of the police. Trust me. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I yeah, that I thought was weird because he's the father of the kid. Why is he going to get all that attention? Uh, I mean, I of think course, kind of kind of the point is he he kind of he kind of flipped his mind a little bit. There we're just going to let that sit there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. I have no further questions. All right. Just making sure we're all in accord on this one. Wait, what? What? Yeah, he he did kind of flip his biscuit near yeah. the end. 
you know, and I think what, what Josh had said earlier, there's a little bit of a conversation about whether or not he act Damien was the son of Satan or what well, this crazy priest got into the father's head type of thing. Well, I They're think with the final destination shit, you, you almost can't deny that there's some kind of external force going on. And I think that's why in all, in all honesty, you know, the cops got called and everything is because, you know, Satan quote unquote, you know, made sure that the attention was drawn in the first place. So that when the father got killed, not only did he save his son, but it got so much attention and it got such a, you know, probably such a sympathy thing for this kid that the president himself said, well, I'm going to do the right PR thing and adopt this kid. Well, it was also well established at the beginning that the president and the ambassador were good friends. Right. Well, so the, I mean, the, so it's, it's, the whole thing just is all a big, you know, final destination setup to make sure that the president adopts this kid. Well, and, yeah, and sure. Robert Thorne was the president's godson. Right. So they, they specifically mentioned that earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Even yeah. more so for him getting adopted. And, and they kind of slow roll you on that because uh, they mention it at the beginning, and then all of a sudden the kid's adopted by the president at the end. And you're like, oh yeah, yeah. And if you, I mean, if you really extrapolate it out politically, it would be a, a genius move if once it has, this kid has all this attention to adopt him, you know? Right. I almost kind of wish that they had gone on with, you know, this is done better and they had done another you want two movies sequel? on this one. Yeah. You I want mean, a trilogy? They trilogy? did, but yeah, this, the second one was not great. I mean, that's kind of when you come to cash in sequels, horror movies are like that. Like maybe Joel can chime in to say if any of the cash in sequels for the big franchises were good. Blair Witch was one of the two was one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Exorcist Mm. 2 is hands down the worst, possibly the worst film ever made, but the worst sequel ever made. But then the third one is the opposite. It's one of the best sequels ever made for a horror film. It's, you know, at least it has a, an amazing, uh, sequence. It's, but mm. yeah, they, they, yeah, they didn't f- continue on with, uh, this version of the, the story. Uh, the, there wasn't reboot. Yeah. There was also an Omen TV series in 2021. See, I, I want to be snarky about that, but when we did the Exorcist TV series, it was pretty good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder. But yeah. No, I mean, it's... I hmm. enjoyed this. Yeah, I... I uh, the first time I saw it, I was kind of, like, expecting um, to, like we had said earlier, you know, to kind of go into it and be like... I like all these people, but for some reason, this just didn't work. But uh, reality is, is that it did kind of work. Mm-hmm. I guess the big question is, this was decent. Did it need to exist? Um, I think that's a hard question. Hmm. Maybe. I think if it had, had improved on the original it would be necessary, but I don't really think it, I mean, I don't think it's worse than the original, but I don't think it improved on it. So probably no, it didn't really need to exist. (sighs) 
Yeah, I guess that uh, that's fair. I, I don't, I don't know that there really was uh, any necessity there because they didn't go far enough into their own creative uh, avenues to make it something new. But I mean, I guess it it did bring it to a modern audience, perhaps. The story. I'd like to think that people saw this and went, oh, wow, there was an original and went and watched the original and was like, oh, that's cool, too. I mean, I mean, I'll, I'll watch the original Omen again. I probably won't watch this one again. Yep. I mean, that's kind of why I broached the subject is like, I, I liked this. Spoilers. The guy liked this. But when they say uh, about remakes is like, was this a necessary thing? I thought that was a relevant question. Mm-hmm. I th- almost think that the idea of it came up where they were like, we have 666 coming up real soon. You know, 6-6-2006, they there was almost an expectation that something was going to come out that day. Well, and I do hope if this was a cash in, I hope at least they they cashed in. I hope they made some money on it. Yeah. Yeah, because it could have been way like horrible, bad, worse, like garbage. Oh, and- yeah, we've seen that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, well, I, they- I think Poltergeist was probably one of the worst examples. Mm-hmm. Amityville Horror, I remember. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like yeah, that yeah. That was the worst one. You're that's right. That's a good example. For sure. Ooh. Oh, pretty awful. Even the sexy man couldn't save it. <laughs> right? That's pretty bad when I don't like a Ryan Reynolds movie. Right? Mm-hmm. You're like, you put that beard on for me and, and you just wasted <laughs> it. You wasted it. <laughs> a waste of a beard for Ryan Reynolds. Fucking dust pigeon. <laughs> well, all Is right. Time for a thumbs up, thumbs down. I think it's time for Thank a thumbs you. up, thumbs down. Yeah. Uh, I'll I'll go first because I'm pretty obvious. It's a thumbs up for both of them. I obviously really love the original, and I did not think the, the remake was bad. It just kind of you know didn't really didn't it, even though it, it expanded on the story and and told the story maybe a little bit better. It didn't really add anything to it. So yeah, yeah, I'm kind of where Pat is. Like I, I'm a thumbs up on both. I'm glad I saw these. Uh, I did broach the subject of whether the second one needed to exist, but it was good. It was fine. Mm-hmm. Joel, uh, what about you? I'm a thumbs up on both. I, I enjoyed the original and uh, I enjoyed the remake and yeah, I dig it. Cool. Yeah. Honestly, same here. Thumbs up on both of them. The rare of late eight thumbs. Right. It's been a while since we had that. Yeah, I know. Eight thumbs of eight thumbs. So if you have your thoughts on any of the stuff we've talked about this month or a show idea, maybe uh, let us know. Give us a call at 708-NOW-RAP. That's 708-669-9727. Yep. And if you're looking for our back catalog, you can find them on your favorite podcast app. Find us on Blueberry or on Pandora or Amazon, Google, or Apple Podcasts. And definitely give us a review and a thumbs up and share us out. If you like this show, Pass it on to your friends. We appreciate it.
What do we got coming up for the final week, Joel? Uh, for the final week of October, we are going to be uh, checking the children because uh, it's time for When a Stranger Calls. Excellent. So thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next week. Have you checked the children? I'm not going up there. That's Damien's room. I just like the idea, like, if he was just now a superhero, and he's dust pigeon, and all the time he's like, it wasn't supposed to be dust! And he's just getting so mad all the time. Like the guy who uh, mistypes his username and is stuck with it forever. <laughs> yep. Pee-pee Halpert, come on. <laughs> it wasn't supposed to be the Long Ranger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs>